Welcome back to Investing Experts. My name is Rena Sherbel. Excited to talk to Alex King today from Sestrian Capital Research, who runs the investing group Growth Investor Pro. We get into stocks, ETFs, a bit of the macro picture, a lot about the tech sector and how investors should be looking at the markets and stocks in general, and the always important reminder that there's a difference between a company and a stock. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. We have morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Hope you enjoy today's conversation with Alex. Alex King, welcome to welcome back to Investing Experts. My first time talking to you, but I believe your third time on the show. So thanks so much for joining us. Not at all. Delighted to be here. Thank you, as always, for the invitation. Very kind. Absolutely. It's always good to have you on the show. I always enjoy listening to your appearances here and reading your articles. You write under Sestrian Capital Research, and your investing group is called Growth Investor Pro. Do you want to share? I know that you've shared a bit about this in your previous appearances, but maybe give give listeners a bit of a taste about what you focus on, what your speciality is, and how you're looking at the markets as we are here July 20th. Yeah, of course. Very happy to. Um, so just, just briefly, just to clarify all the branding and whatnot, so just a little bit of background. So uh, it's Alex King speaking. I'm the founder and the chief exec of Sestrian. Uh, Sestrian Capital Research is a, an SEC-regulated independent investment research business. We've been going for a few years now, uh, and we've had a, a really uh, successful run, uh, unusually so for an independent research shop, but we run a, a high-growth, um, highly profitable business that's done really well through basically saying what we think. And we've put together really strong a team of analysts, not your normal um, bench, you know, straight out of college, that sort of thing, but a team of experienced investors that have been brought together on the basis of different kinds of senior senior experience. So we have uh, Yimin, who writes our macro work, he's a former professional uh, rates trader. Uh, we have Jay, who does our options work, who's a professor of uh, data science and options trader. Uh, we have Nick, who writes our operational uh, insights. So he's formerly a, a turnaround executive, and so on and so on and so on. So we've basically built a group of people that have got uh, you know plenty of miles under the belt, as do I. Um, it's not their first rodeo, and you know aren't much kidded by anything they happen to see on CNBC, and all of whom think independently and think differently. And all of our work reflects that spirit. So we we our motto is sort of fiercely independent, and we we stick to that. I guess that's um, why we get along so well here at Seeking Now. Yeah, well, we do. We do. We do. We do well together. So we've done fantastically well from Seeking Alpha. We started out on Seeking Alpha, and it's been a great run. We love working with you guys. You do a terrific job. Likewise. Um, yeah, and um, we we run, as you know, two services on the Seeking Alpha platform, both called Growth Investor Pro. We have a light version, which is a ninety-nine dollar for your first year service. It's just very simple buy and uh, sell ideas. And then we have the full Growth Investor Pro service, which is a real-time coverage, real money, um, as in uh, we tell you in advance what uh, what trades are happening in Sestrian staff personal accounts before those trades are placed in the stocks and ETFs that we cover. There's a live chat room. There's you know, a whole gamut of 
content from equities to ETFs to options uh, to uh, bond market insights and so on and so forth. So it's a full service service, if you like. Take on the markets right now. Uh, well, you know, everybody has good runs and bad runs. Um, we've had a, a pretty good run in the last couple of years. We, uh, if, if I look at the the highlights and lowlights, so we called the the COVID lows pretty well. Um, we called the November twenty one highs pretty well. We were a bit hasty, I would say, in calling the bottom uh, in twenty twenty two, but we got it right in the end. And then we called. Uh, you know, buy a lot uh, in the third and fourth quarter of 2022 pretty well. And that's obviously paid off. You know, most of our coverage in that service is tech, not all of it, but most of it. And that's paid off pretty well. And we've been able to harvest both in our own personal accounts and with sell calls in the service, uh, you know, a number of 50 to 60% gains across many, many stocks, tech stocks that were written off as you know, forever losers in the 2022. So it good so far for us. And now, of course, is the point of maximum risk because now is the time at which you think, oh, well, we must be geniuses. And that's when it all goes wrong, obviously. <laughs> so th- what we're focused on right now is, okay, tech has had an incredible run. We think the NASDAQ has more to go. We think it can make new all-time highs within a few months. Uh, and we think it can push on beyond that. But, but you know, the easy money in tech has gone now. You know, the easy money was... Uh, grit your teeth, um, hold on for dear life and buy at the end of 22. Um, and then either lock in gains by selling or hedging or whatever you like uh, in the the second end of the first half of 23. And so what we're looking at now is, well, if you want to deploy new capital today, where's the best risk reward? And there are some laggards in tech that haven't really taken off. So Autodesk, for instance, we just published as a a, a buy idea in the the light service. We think that that's just not really uh, participated in the bull run, but we think it can do as people realize that oh, maybe that recession risk is a bit lower than they thought. And um, the other place that, that we're looking is uh, across in, in our company, in our business is things like financial stocks, consumer stocks that have been left behind, those sorts of things. And so for instance, another pick in that light service recently was BlackRock, uh, which has shot up. You know, It's up about 10 points in a, a week or so um and we look for the same pattern each time we're looking for really strong companies fundamentally good companies but then using technical analysis to say well can we see some breadcrumbs whereby it looks like large account players are you know buying heavily accumulating or selling heavily distributing and what and, and can we try and follow along from that so we're just looking for clues in the the stock chart basically and try to follow those and that's well, it's worked well so far so we'll see what happens tomorrow right yeah indeed um, I wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, one of your primary focuses is tech. What are your thoughts about the NASDAQ rebalancing and how tech has thrown some stuff out of whack? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is I, I'm a three decade professional investor and I spent that time in uh, pretty much all in tech. So in venture capital, leverage buyouts and now in public securities. And what I can say is that since you know, for my whole career, um, people always think that tech is, you know, overvalued, um, a, you know, a Ponzi scheme, a scam, you know, you pick the label. And then in those brief periods of time when tech dumps and when it dumps, it dumps hard, as we all know, you know, people are triumphant. You know, I told you all along it was a scam sort of thing. 
and, and it always bounces back really hard. You know, the, the fact of tech is it's just it's high beta. You know, it overreacts to the upside and it overreacts to the downside. And the reason for that is that tech is a really young industry. You know, th there's if you pick any of the big tech companies, they're growing at improbably high rates, despite the fact that they have huge, you know, revenue numbers. And you just don't find that in other industries. And the reason is you know, that famous comment about software eating the world is, you know, railroad is a, I don't know, 150-year-old industry. Um, you know, auto is a 120-year-old industry. Um, tech is, at best, it's half that. And really, if you look at, well, when did, you know, for instance, software and semiconductors and systems and services really all become disentangled and feature a plethora of independent vendors, that's probably not more than 40 years. It's a really young industry. And therefore, it's taking more and more uh, spend within the economy. And so as a result, it's not really surprising that the stocks are a con continually a good bet. And it's not really surprising that the surprises tend to come to the upside. Of course, every now and then there's a there's a you know, huge crash. You know, So in my career, I've invested through the, the dot-com crisis of you know, 2000 to 2002. Now, people think of that as a generational life-changing event but it was a two-year correction you know sure some companies didn't recover but but many did and in 2003 onwards the nasdaq started to put in a really good performance i've invested through the mortgage crisis of 07 to 09 again people think of it as a generational change but you know from the first quarter of 09 the nasdaq started to moon and it hasn't really looked back since and then you know of course through the recent covid crisis and then the, the i'm not going to call it a crisis but the rate rise reset of 2022 and so volatility in the tech market is to, to borrow a you know a much used phrase. It's a feature. It's not a bug. And so you have to learn to live with it. So you can either live with it by not overallocating. You can live with it by hedging. You can live with it by you know taking gains at the top and reinvesting at the bottom. Lots of ways to do it. Um, but but if you can ride out those waves, it's a great sector. As regards the rebalancing, um, I, I'm not sure it's. It, it's probably our ignorance on these topics, but if I'm absolutely honest, we never spend too much time looking at the uh, the way that the indices are built up. Um, you know, when a stock joins or gets kicked out of any of the major indices, there's, there's always obviously a, a, a short-term disturbance in that stock, for better or worse. But in the end, um, you know, the stock will perform how the stock's going to perform and the index will perform how the index performs. So it, that's probably a blind spot on our part, to be honest. But we haven't paid too much attention to it. Is it a blind spot or do you think the media pays too much attention to it? Well, I know that we don't pay enough attention to it. So I'm not, I'm because <laughs> fair enough. So maybe yeah, it's somewhere because, in the because you know, you can't cover everything. And, and, um, and we right. tend to, we tend to look at, you know, two things really. So two things really matter to us. So when it comes to underlying companies, the, the DNA in our business is very strongly, um, built on fundamental analysis. So my own background in you know, leverage buyouts obviously uh, feeds into that. And the other folks that do work for us are similarly detail-oriented. So we we have a, a good feel for what is a good company and a bad company. That's different to the stock, of course, um, but that's the foundation. And then the next part we look at is, well, what does the stock chart look like? So we look at the underlying company, and then if it's a single-name stock, we look at the stock chart. And obviously there's lots of other things you can do. There's many other angles to, 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 to bring to the party here, but those are our two and they work for us. And right now that's pretty much all, that's all the 
brain space that we have. I'm I'm sure there are many tricks that we miss and probably index rebalancing is one of them, but but it's just not something we focus on too much. Been a lot of talk recently on the show about the difference between a company and a stock and the saliency of of noting the fact that there is a difference. Yeah. Right. Um, so the Financial Times just came out recently and said that hedge funds are pivoting to Europe on doubts that the U.S. rally led by the tech sector has legs. What what are your thoughts on, on a statement like that? Okay, well, first of all, I never read any financial media, ever. Da, 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 um, I, da, I make da. it a point of religion um, to, to not read the FT. I don't read the Wall Street Journal. Why? I don't watch CNBC. Well, why would you? You know, what, what, how is it going to help you? You know, these things are, um, at best, they're amateur commentary at best. Mm -hmm. And at worst, they're promulgating a narrative that isn't there to help you, the individual investor, it's there to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so what possible benefit could you have from reading these things? I think, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning about these things, it's okay to, to, you know, to read the paper for fun and watch CNBC for entertainment, but but really and truly, who makes any money by reading the FT and watching CNBC and acting on them? I mean, that's the whole point of sites like Seeking Alpha, which is the independence of thought that you get from the many fantastic analysts that are on the platform, from Seeking Alpha's own services. It, it's 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 much better work, um, or at least the, the the best content on Seeking Alpha is light years better than anything you'll find on on CNBC or, or the FT. So uh, one, I, I make a point of not reading it. And, and ever since I stopped, I found that my investing performance improved because I had more time to think for myself. Um, and also I, I, I found my brain less poisoned by somebody else's narrative. Right? Um, <laughs> as regards pivoting to you, I, I don't know. I think that, again, I, I've done this for a long time. There's people that have done it for longer, but, but I've done this for a long time. And the US always leads. I mean, sure, there are times when, um, you know, Europe, Europe offers opportunities in, you know, energy or mining or, you know, whatever it might be. But, you know, tech is always the leading sector, except in those one or two years every now and then when it dumps. And the US remains the leading place uh, that generates the best quality tech companies and the most liquid tech stocks, uh, the, the, the most volatile in a good way uh, tech opportunities as in volatility to the upside. Um, and so, you know, for three decades, I've heard this thing about uh, the US, the, the sun is setting on Silicon Valley or on the US in general. And well, maybe it'll happen one day, but I don't think it's happened yet. Mm -hmm. So how would you synthesize the kind of, are there a kind of tech stock that makes sense at this point in the cycle? Or is it company specific? Well, um, so, so I think it all depends on your time frame. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you're putting together a retirement portfolio now and you're, you know, 30 and you're planning to invest regularly over the course of the next you know, 30 years, does it make sense to be buying small allocations of Microsoft stock now at its all-time high? Probably it does. I mean, you know, no one knows the future, but but probably buying little bits now and continuing to buy it over the next 30 years probably isn't a bad idea. Um, if you're trying to make money next week with a highly levered um, option portfolio is buying Microsoft calls now a great idea? Probably not. So I think the answer is, you know, to be a bit unhelpful, it depends. The the, the method that that we use for for what it's worth is we let's assume we filter out good and bad business. And and of course you can make money with stocks that are 
issued by bad businesses. Of course you can, but let's focus on the, the good quality companies. So let's say we tick the box and say good company, as in it's growing quickly. The growth is predictable, measured by you know, the growth in uh, remaining or, remaining performance obligation, the order book, growth in deferred revenue, the prepaid um, orders, uh, gross margins are holding up nicely, uh, cash flow margins are holding up nicely, the balance sheet's solid, all those things. Let's assume we've ticked that away and we said, okay, good company. We then look at, okay, if your time frame is, let's say, you know, w- weeks or months for the sake of argument, we, we look at a technical chart. Now, in our own preferred method, as anyone knows who reads our stuff, is that we use a combination of um, Elliott waves, Fibonacci uh, levels, and something called the Wyckoff cycle. So if that all sounds complicated, it isn't really. It's the names are designed to make it sound complicated and put people off, but 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 they're not. They're really easy. So, you know, the Elliott wave system is just an it's it's a way of tracking emotion. You know, the idea is that we get happy in you know, five waves up, let's say. So happy, bit more sad. Very happy, a bit more sad. Very happy, and then we've ended our happy cycle. And then we get sad in three steps down. So very sad, a bit happier, very sad. Right. So five waves up, three waves down. And that repeating motif you can find time and time and time again in, in highly liquid stocks and uh, and ETFs and indices. It's much harder in small stocks that are not well traded, but liquid stocks, you can see that emotional pattern. That's all it is, time and again. And then we look at, we use Fibonacci levels. That sounds really uh, esoteric. It isn't. It's just a way of measuring the amplitude of the waves we just talked about. So is that a big wave up? If so, it's lots of extensions. Is it a big drop? It's a big retracement. And there are fairly standard patterns that emerge time and again, not because of some mystical nature of stock markets or, you know, uh, the way in which neurons are structured in the brain. It's just a language that large account players use. Now, if you can learn to talk stock market, then you can be a more successful trader and investor because all you're learning is what are the rules by which large account investors play. And if you can learn those rules and spot the breadcrumbs in the charts in particular, and you can follow just a little bit behind, you can do really well. We then use something called the Wyckoff cycle. This is really important. So this applies to typically over a period of weeks, months, even years, which is if if you this is not a perfect analogy, this is an idealized motif, but it, it's a good method to use. So if you manage a truly colossal amount of money, then you, you can't make enough money by just buying Microsoft and sitting back and hoping it goes up. Not least because every time you write a check, if you're not careful, the market moves. The thing you're buying, the index of the stock you're buying moves as it does when you sell it. So what you see with truly large accounts is over time accumulation, meaning they'll buy slowly and they'll buy in pieces, uh, small pieces over time, nothing happening quickly. If the stock runs up a bit, they'll maybe sell a little bit to let the air come out of the stock. But you can spot those patterns on a chart. If you use, um, anyone can read our work on the free side of Seeking Health and you'll see it the volume by price indicators. And you can see as those spike, that's a big gray set of bars on the right-hand side of our charts. As they spike up at the lows in a big liquid stock uh, after a big market sell-off, it's probable that that's large account players accumulating, buying up. And you'll see the stock moving in a horizontal channel over a period of time, weeks, months usually. And you'll then see the stock start to break out. And around that time, so all the way through this accumulation, Usually on CNBC, you're being told how terrible that company is or the world is or, you know, there's a recession or a war or whatever it might be. All of a sudden, when that stock starts to move up through the markup uh, zone, as we call it, which is just borrowed from this Wyckoff uh, motif, 
miraculously, you know, financial media will be telling you, you know, oh, well, things are looking up for that. And you'll see more often than you might think, these stocks then start to move up quite quickly and uh, eventually reach a place of so-called distribution where you'll see those that volume spike again. And so you can see it in the Tesla chart just now, for instance. So, um, you know, if you look, uh, I have it in front of me, if you if you fire this, the chart up and we can post this as a, a comment to this uh, podcast when it's posted, there's clearly accumulation um, early this year when the stock was sat between about 150 and about 211. And then distribution started when with the stock is between about 240 and about 280. And so if you were watching for that, then even on a relatively short-term trade over the course of a few weeks or months, you can follow those breadcrumbs and make money from it. So for us, we separate entirely, you know, company and stock behavior. So first of all, is it a good company? You know, if no, then you're just, you're gambling. Nothing wrong with gambling if you're good at it, right? But if yes, you can be investing. And then the question is, when do you buy and when do you sell? And for us, and there's you know, a million methods of doing this, we claim no genius on this, but our method is try and see what large account players are doing and just follow behind them a little bit. Don't try and be cleverer than them. You don't need to be. Um, because the advantage you have as an individual investor, uh, or even, to be honest, a fair-sized hedge fund that isn't a giant insurance company is you, your volumes don't move the market and theirs do. So you can see their behavior but you can typically shield yours and therefore you you have an advantage your lack of um you know giant outsized fund is an advantage and that's our method very good um last time you were on you were talking about intel and how they had just gotten through the worst quarter of any company that you've reviewed <laughs> ever yeah <laughs> ever 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 what uh what when, when, what, when what, what are that? you thinking about it now well, it's up. <laughs> when was that podcast? It was in February, beginning of February. February. All right. Okay. So let me just, I've got the Intel chart right here. Okay. So at the end of February, yeah, the stock was at 26. And we were, we called, you'd have to check back in our service, but we were calling by um, very, pretty strongly around that time and slightly before. And um, what's it now? It's at 33 now. So it's up quite nicely. I think Intel, um, in, I think there's two ways to look at Intel. Everyone knows the stock, right? Everyone knows the history. Intel started to make, you know, a, a, a holy show of operations some years ago. As anyone knows that follows the semiconductor industry or, or the stock in particular, um, it, its process manufacturing just hit the skids for, for, for many reasons. Poor management is at the core and and they they missed the move to initially the 10 nanometer process node and then beyond and they've just fallen further and further and further behind and that's a problem if you are you know one um a, a huge market share owner of of cpu supply but it's an even bigger problem if you are you know the only us owned semiconductor fabrication company of any scale at a time when semiconductors are pivotal to the battle between the two great powers, the US and China, and when you know the other giant in fabrication, TSMC, um, China thinks is a Chinese business. <laughs> no one else thinks it's a Chinese business, thinks it's a Taiwanese business, but China clearly has designs on Taiwan. And so the, 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 the slow movement of this battle between the great powers, 
you know, the, the things to watch here is not the movement of, you know, carrier groups or missile silos. It's the movement of semiconductor fabrication capital. And so Intel, to us, it, it absolutely has to succeed. It cannot fail. And this is not like um, a bank is too big to fail. This is, you know, in the battle for global supremacy, semiconductors are to the fore. And if the US is to succeed, Intel must succeed because you can't build um, fabrication plants under some other ownership quickly enough with enough accuracy tr that are trusted by fabulous players fast enough in order to replace Intel. You can't. And so Intel has to win. So the, the federal government, in, well, in my opinion, you know, scoop money into Intel for as long as is necessary for it to survive. And so as an investment plan, that's a fantastic investment opportunity because the stock, as you just mentioned, reported what I think we'd said was the worst quarter of any company we'd ever seen ever in decades. Stock went up, you know, because it doesn't, it, at this point, right at this moment, it's not really about the fundamentals at Intel. It's about a strategic battle between the US and China. And the US obviously means to win, so does China, but the US's major uh, chip, pun intended, is Intel. And so that was our very simple investment logic for Intel. I'm long Intel personally. I added to it recently. I think the stock has a great future. I think for what it's worth, the company probably will come right. I think the new CEO is better. I think they understand their problems better. Um, but it's, that's not really the dominant investment thesis. The dominant investment thesis is there's a Cold War going on. Both sides mean to win it. Um, and if you think the US has any chance of winning it, you probably want to own Intel. Were you at all surprised by China coming out with their regulations against the chip makers? Well, I, I would say first and foremost, I, I'm about as far from a China expert as you will find. Um, but I would say that I, I think it's a very hard game for them to play this. You know, the advantage that, that China has, of course, is it does not have electoral cycles, which is an advantage. Um, it has a command economy of sorts, which is an advantage. Um but it, what it doesn't have is the extent of intellectual property base that the US has, you know, despite, you know, many years of playing catch up, it, it's not there yet. Um, and, you know, at least in the last century or so, it, one of the best setups, if you want to be in conflict with another empire, is having a truly free market capitalistic economy and a, and a liberal you know, small L um, polity, as in, you know, a, a democracy. And those things turn out to be huge advantages. And China, so it, it, it doesn't have a truly free economy. It doesn't have a truly free polity. Uh, it doesn't have the intellectual property. And ultimately, it has less of access to capital than does the US. And so it's a, that's a tough spot. That's a hard place from which to win. So I don't really know what their winning moves are. I'm sure there are some. And again, ask a China expert, they'll tell you, and that's not me. But that they make unpredictable moves, I think is born of the fact that they have, a, in my opinion, a weak hand. Um, they tried a, a very good strategy for them, which is, you know, invite US capital over, invite US intellectual property over, you know, attempt to assimilate some of that, you know, with some success has to be said. But the US has you know, opened its eyes to that and pulled back under two administrations now. Um, I'm not sure what China's next move is. I'm not sure they're sure either. So, yeah, that they make these unpredictable moves, I think, is a function of, mm -hmm. well, what is the winning play from where they are? Um, 
it, it could be the old-fashioned one of well if you wait a couple of centuries then most empires destroy themselves you know it's happened in every country in europe i'm english as you can hear um, at, at least by passport um, if not by uh, genes uh, and so you know the british empire spectacularly collapsed under its own um, self-satisfaction self, um, and there's every possibility that the us will do that but it's not going to happen next year or the year after and pr probably not in the next 50 years so what does China do? It either waits, you know, 100, 200 years, and that might be a good play, um, or it tries to accelerate it somehow. And I'm, I'm not sure what that accelerant is. But again, you should ask a China expert. In terms of looking at the, the what's going on in the market, you mentioned that you're looking at some financials now. I'm curious what your thoughts are. And we can talk about tech financials and and another sector too, if you want. But I'm curious about the financials and the tech, the, the recent earnings that have come out what's what's been your take and what do you think the takeaway is for investors um well i'm I, again i'm going to tell you that we're not finance experts at all um <laughs> the our interest in the financial stocks is, is purely on a rotation play so what we looked at was uh coming into the second half of june this year we'd said well look a lot of these tech stocks are they've run up a lot and we think they can run up further but if you're looking at risk reward particularly if if you were buying in the second half of 22 and you're up 50 60 percent then sure you can hold on for more and you might get more but but risk management says you probably want to be taking some or all of your profits or hedging or something right don't let that don't let those gains slip away and and as regards putting new capital to work well where would you put it and so what we did was we looked around sector by sector to say well where can we see the same sorts of accumulation at the lows that we saw in tech in you know q3 and q4 22 uh, and and there were a couple of sectors that showed up, but financials was for sure one of them, particularly because the you know recent regional banking crisis had pummeled a lot of the stocks, including the bigger and better those stocks of the bigger and better companies. So um, I, I I don't claim any special insight into you know bank earnings analysis. Uh, far far from it. You know you have far better uh, financial stock analysts on your platform than us, um, but we we're pretty handy with a. You know a Wyckoff chart, and so far um, in in our seeking alpha services, we've we've got uh, BlackRock as a pick, and that's again that's done really really well. Um, some other stocks that we cover in our non-seeking alpha services are things like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, Citigroup, Bank of New York, and, and these also look good. I, as for disclosure, I own all these names, I long positions in all these names personally. But they all look good on that accumulation basis. And so that that's my interest, which is when large accounts are taking profits on tech and rotating them back into somewhere else to generate their own gains, wh where are they going? And there's two or three sectors I think they're going into and financials is one of them. So we, we called that a couple of weeks ago and started putting some um, names out there uh, on our various services. And um, yeah, in, in, in our light seeking alpha service, I think BlackRock's up, up 10% in 10 days or something. So that that's luck to be up that much that quickly. But that it's going up isn't isn't a surprise. And ETFs, is it a similar? Um, how, what's your approach with ETFs? So we do two things with ETFs, um, and, and again, this is all within our Growth Investor Pro service. The, the name Growth Investor Pro is a little bit misleading because we do cover things like defense, space, telecom. Um, we cover the Dow, you know, the, those sorts of things. So the, the, the name's a bit misleading. Um, we we do two things with ETFs. So first of all, we look at the SPDR sector ETFs, you know, so XLK, XLY, XLC, all of these, the, the, the component parts of the S&P for want of a better term. 
And we use those to, first of all, come up with um, investment ideas in the ETFs themselves on that rotation basis, which is, you know, if, uh, if, if, if you look right now, XL, uh, F, the financial uh, ETF has been out of favor for some time. It's likely to move up. And that's one of the things that drew our attention to the the, the, the bank single stock ideas. Um, if you did the same analysis uh, nine months ago, you'd be saying, well, XLK, the, the tech ETF is looking destroyed, as is XLC, as is XLY. So C being uh, com services, things like AT&T, meta platforms, and XLY consumer discretionary, which is uh, Tesla, Amazon, things like that. And so if you look at the the, the sector ETFs that are on the floor, you know, and, and digging into the basement, they're usually pretty compelling places to, one, start to accumulate the ETF themselves. It, you know, again, the big liquid ones. I mean, there are obviously there is all sorts of weird and wonderful ETFs holding tiny, weird and wonderful liquid stocks. That's great. You know, you can make lots of money doing that, but that's that's not our focus. Our focus is on the big liquid ones. Um, and then also, if you see the big sector ETF starting to behave in a certain way, you can then use that as a signpost to go look for single stock opportunities. So there's that, the sector rotation analysis we look at. And then the other thing we do is um, we use the uh, the index ETFs. So that's, you know, the QQQ, uh, the SPY, uh, the DIA, IWM. We use those, those to generate standalone um, long and short trading opportunities. Now, this isn't, you know, for everyone's taste, not everyone that subscribes to our service uses this. Many don't, but some are, you know, some have used it a lot. And so w we tend to chart those out really carefully, you know, every every day. And, you know, here in our offices, you know, we look at them 20 times a day and come up with long and short index ETF ideas, usually using the, the three times levered long and short uh, in the index ETFs as hedged pairs. So in other words, if you were wanting to trade the NASDAQ, we would look at TQQ as the long and SQQ as the short. We often have hedged opportunities where we'll hold both at the same time. Um, the idea being that as, as one moves up, try and cash out on the long, and as it moves down, try and cash out on the short. And that's that's not, that, that's an adjunct to the work we do uh, we do pretty well at it, but it's it's fairly time intensive and it's not something that all of our subscribers like to do, but we do it a lot. And the benefit that it brings across the service is a laser focus from us on what what indices are doing. So we look really closely at um, e each of the indices in the futures, you know, hour by hour, minute by minute. And that can tell you a lot about what's going to happen in some single stock names. So if you know, for instance, the, the NASDAQ and the S&P are both running up to um, key resistance levels, then there's a good probability that if you own uh, high beta stocks, then if the NASDAQ's hitting its head on resistance, it's likely to sell off a little bit in the next week or two, then probably those high beta names are going to sell off more. So depending on where you're positioned, you may want to take profits, or if you're waiting to buy into them, you might think, well, a better opportunity will come along in a week or two. So we use ETFs both for themselves and also as signposts for the single stocks that, that we cover. Very good. Um, anything that you feel like you uh, would want to share with listeners in terms of anything to do with the macro picture? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of focus there, but any any thoughts there or or takes? Yeah, I mean, we have we have a fantastic um, macro analyst in in our 
um, business, uh, Yimin Zhu, who writes a series for us called Macro Musings. Again, he's a former uh, pro rates trader, does a, a great job for us. He covers, you know, Federal Reserve uh, analysis, rates market analysis, you know, implications for the ten-year yield, implications for equities. So he does a great job for us. That's not my world. It's not my focus, but but he does a great job for us. And again, that can be used as a read across, as a signpost for what to do in equities. Um, I'd say we're as a firm, we're pretty high level on macro stuff. Uh, we, um, if you look back at the last podcast that, that we did with you guys, we were really very, very clear and said, we don't see any signs of a recession, none whatsoever. Don't believe it. Mm-hmm. I do not believe the narrative that is all over CNBC and the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. We don't believe it because there isn't any evidence of it, right? Um, and, and so, so far, that's proven to be just a narrative not a reality. And of course that could change next month. We don't know. But for now, you know, anyone who followed that narrative um, and was fearful and going long stocks is, has either been punished if they were short or they've missed out on great opportunities because frankly, they were, they were fed a narrative and, and that's not their fault. I mean, you know, if you don't know you're being fed a narrative, if you don't know that you need to think for yourself, then <laughs> well, we all, well, we all get an expensive education every now and then. Right. Uh, and yeah. and all, all of us do, you know, every every month, every year, it happens to us in, in different ways. All of us, doesn't matter, you know, how smart we think we are. Um, sure. And so we were clear on that. Um, you know, economies don't go up in a straight line forever. My, my guess for what it's worth is we get a, a decent run until the US presidential election because, you know, you, like any administration, yeah, the whole of DC will be doing everything they can to keep everything going up and to the right, up into the election. That's not a party political statement. Any administration in any country does that. Um, and so I, I think we have a, a reasonably clear run for the next, you know, year, 15, 18 months, something like that. Um, and then and then we'll see. Um, you know, we'll see how the world adapts to money that costs something. I think I don't think we're going back to the zero interest rate environment. Um, I don't think we're going back into you know, hand over fist QE. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how the world adapts to, to all of that. Um, but, you know, so far, so good. So we'll see. Do you feel that the market is overconfident about the Fed engineering a soft landing? I don't, to be honest. No. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's a, it's obviously a highly charged question at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, if you look at the NASDAQ, you know, the NASDAQ has, has obviously run up crazy, but then it, it sold off, you know, too, too hard if you like i mean it, it, if you look at if you look at it on a fibonacci scale so um it, it's put in a really nicely simple chart pattern since the end of 2018 so you know december 2018 was a key moment for certainly for the nasdaq and the s p because it marked a reversal in federal reserve policy right so through 2018 you've got tightening monetary policy so a reduction in the supply of money and an increase in the cost of money End of 2018, the Fed reversed course, um, it, more money became available, and it was cheaper. So you got a run-up that lasted to right before the uh, the COVID crisis hits. You then got an almost perfect 78.6% Fibonacci retracement down to the COVID lows. And that is not an accident. Right? Again, it's not mysticism, and it's not you know some weird artifact of brain structure. It's just the language. It's a deep sell-off. You know, Q1 2020, we then get you know, options expiry, dealer hedge rebalancing, a flood of federal liquidity. NASDAQ puts in a, a 2.618 way three extension up to November 21. And then it puts in a huge retrace, right? So, you know, okay, rates went up, but I mean, they didn't go up that much. If, if you anything, 
if you're more than I don't know 35 years old, you can remember a time when rates were much higher than this, um, and yet the Nasdaq gave up, you know, six slightly more than 60% of the gains it had achieved from the COVID lows to the 2021 high. So it sold off too much. So that it's run up fast is just a function of what it sold off too much. So you know, is it is the market over optimistic? I, I don't think it is. I think right now, again, on the evidence. Uh, is the US going to hit a hard recession? Probably not. It might do, but probably not. And folks are still, from from what I can glean, underweight equities by and large. There's still lots of fear in the market. Um, and okay, the 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 Nasdaq might have moon, but the Russell 2000 hasn't. You know, the Russell 2000 looks like it's going to break out to the upside sometime soon. And so there's plenty of opportunity still to make money you know again the easy money in the nasdaq that was that's probably gone yeah that easy money was there if you bought in the grip of fear in q3 q4 last year but look at the russell 2000 look at the chart the iwm you know it's 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 under heavy accumulation it looks like it started to break to the upside and if it does it's going to break up pretty quickly um so no i i, I think um i think markets are rational um and i i think that um I think the move up from the October lows is going to be proven correct. I think that the real economy will bear out the market's confidence, I think. Mm -hmm. And in terms of a recession, are there data points in the in the macro sense that you feel like are more pertinent than others? And also in terms of a recession being backward looking, how when do you think at the point we'll know that we are there if we do get there? Well, again, if you want macro expertise, you know, ask a macro expert, and that's not me. But but our lens is corporate earnings, and you know, if you look at the stocks that we cover, um, earnings turned around already. So if you let's pick, you know, pick the big tech names. Pick you know, Microsoft's a great example. Microsoft stock held up much better early in 22 than it should have done because the the earnings it was printing were pretty awful i mean apple earnings you know terrible really i, I know that's heresy and you're not allowed to say it and you know brickbats will land on my desk for saying it but i mean apple's fundamental performance has been awful um growth terrible cash flow margins down you know there's nothing good to see there but the stocks held up um really well but th those uh as always, the stocks rebounded before earnings did. But if you look at the earnings that Microsoft printed in its most recent quarter, you can see things starting to improve already. And so if the biggest companies in the economy are showing improving earnings, sure, perhaps we get a recession based on the technical measures that people call a recession. But do we have an unhealthy economy if the biggest companies are showing earnings growth that already bottomed and turned around? I don't think so. And so... The R word doesn't scare me particularly um, whilst we see that ongoing earnings growth in those biggest companies. Small companies will live and fall, live and die by their own you know, product set and marketing skill and whatnot. And so you can't look at any individual small tech company or you know, a MongoDB or a CrowdStrike or any of those. It doesn't tell you anything about the economy. That tells you something about the skill of their own staff. But, but the biggest companies, if they're showing earnings turnarounds, it doesn't give me much to fear in the macro environment. Did you see that Goldman came out with a note talking about potential uplift in earnings? No, I don't read any sell-side anal analysis. Okay, yeah, I thought that. For the same I reason. thought that was going to be your answer. But, but you know, it's not written to help me, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, it's not written to help any of us. So I think sell-side analysis is useful insofar as um, it 
some of it moves the market and and if you know the way in which it's going to move the market great you can react accordingly but but don't think that something that an investment bank produces for free <laughs> is designed to help you because it, i mean let's let's remember the famous tim apple quote which is if the product is free the product is you right and the same is true of sell side research and financial media you know that's why um again i mean i hate to you know play the house tune here um but you know seeking alpha does a fantastic job it promotes independent thought um it has its own independent content your you know premium service is terrific your um, alpha pick service is really good and then you host you know a, a score of independent analysts like ourselves that have their own ideas to publish and you know folks will be right or wrong but no one at least i hope no one is pushing you know a standard you know wall street narrative but you know if you look to you know, Goldman Sachs research notes for your investing insights, you, you know, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Because <laughs> guess what? They didn't tell you first. <laughs> well, I'm enjoying these unwitting alley-oops. I appreciate them very much. I mean, I completely <laughs> agree with them and I find them compelling. Um, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I'll read a comment uh, that'll be something like, oh, the Seeking Alpha agenda or the Seeking Alpha. And I'm like, no, if you only, and it's truly, truly, there is truly no agenda. Bunch of- Well, see- you know, seeking help around an agenda, which is to grow its business, right? Well, but, sure. but it won't yes, grow its business yes. if it says the same things that, you know, Goldman does. Right. It will grow its business to the extent it produces, you know, useful content that people want to pay to read. Yeah. And generally speaking, at, at least, you know, direction of travel, that has to be more often right than wrong in the end, right? I mean, we'll all be right and wrong on any given day. But in the end, the content has to be good. Yeah. Um, and the education has to be good. And it has to be an enjoyable experience. And you have to feel that actually this is helping me the individual investors or you know the, the funds that subscribe to your stuff as well um so yeah i mean of course seeking alpha's got an agenda grow its business you know sestering capital research has an agenda grow its business you know but but what we don't have is a narrative to push right um and and you know if you and you can tell that because we ourselves are you know we're always transparent in what we own in staff personal accounts we'll say that in anything we publish and for those folks who subscribe to our full Growth Investor Pro service, if we make a trade in covered stocks, we'll tell people before the trade is placed. So people can trade before us if we want to. Seeking Alpha, if you look at anything Seeking Alpha publishes, you know, the disclosures are all over the place. You can't write a word on Seeking Alpha without having to disclose, you know, what you own and all of that. So, you know, that's not to say that everything published on the platform is right. Of course it isn't. Um, but uh, I, I personally... You know, there's plenty of seeking alpha authors I read. Um, I, I don't read any Wall Street research. Well, I mean, wow, we had you here for your analysis, but I'll keep you for the free promos. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, look, I, I'd be honest. Look, we we publish across many platforms. We publish on Seeking Alpha. We publish on Substack. We publish on our own Ghost platform. We have lots of lines of business, but it it is a you know a, a great pleasure to work with the Seeking Alpha team. You know, and I'm, we're not economically dependent on seeking alpha we do lots of other things we're successful elsewhere it's a great platform great environment and you know we, we we love working with you guys well we really appreciate it and we feel likewise and i know i speak for a bunch of people behind the scenes that feel that way about working with you guys so i appreciate you coming on today i appreciate you sharing the love and the wealth and uh here's to many more conversations and to more salient analysis well, it's a, always a pleasure to come on so thanks 
very much for the opportunity and um yeah look forward to speaking to you soon thank you thanks alex really appreciate it talk to you soon just a reminder anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice this is for entertainment purposes only and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing if you enjoyed the episode leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app and we'll see you soon with a new episode